大家晚上好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Ladies and gentlemen, also very warm welcome on behalf of Merrick's. As uh, Thomas uh, kindly said already, it's a joint event, a special edition of uh, the Bosch, very important series engaging China. So not only talking about China, but to also talk with Chinese and Western experts. About、uh, China, and we're very glad the Bosch Foundation is having us, having us all out here. And before we dig right onto the topic, let me briefly introduce、uh, tonight's procedure, which is easy, but just that you have an idea. So we will have roughly 45 minutes up here discussing among us, basically David and. Willie and I throwing some hopefully stimulating questions, and then we do have for you half an hour of Q and A afterwards, and then last but not least we will have a reception just behind us in the Lampenzaal, so some drinks and snacks, and we hope you can all stay along and discuss further. So we will talk about Xi Jinping. We will talk about the challenges, the future of the PRC. But I would like to start with the actual event we're currently facing: the 19th Party Congress, starting on October 18th. I mean, both of you, David and Willie, you have seen a couple of Party Congresses. I imagine maybe you can just take us into your your personal mood right now. Such an event, upcoming every five years. What do you feel like, and what is maybe the one key issue you now watch out for, Willie? If I would. Could I invite you to start? Well, thank you very much for coming to this interesting discussion. Most of my friends in Beijing actually have called the 19th Party Congress a coronation event for、uh, Xi Jinping as the life emperor of China. Well, this is of course、uh, a bit cynical and perhaps a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> However, I must point out that if you read the Communist Party Constitution, which is not actually a thick material, you will see that. The Congress of Deputies—that means the、uh, 2,200 odd、uh, members of the deputies who will be attending、uh, the Party Congress—they are described as actually the highest decision-making body, one of the highest decision-making bodies of the party. However, since、uh, Mao Zedong onwards, these deputies have been relegated to. Pretty much a rubber stamp、uh, voting machine. I remember quite clearly that Hu Jintao, the former、uh, president, did in the run-up to the 17th Party Congress in 2007,、uh, want to institute some reforms regarding the Congress of Deputies. For example, instead of just meeting five years and then leaving Beijing after one week,、uh, after casting their votes according to the instructions of the party leadership. That they set up a secretariat, and that the、uh, Congress of Deputies might exercise some kind of a function in scrutinizing and assessing the performance of the Politburo. However,、uh, nothing has transpired, and I think it's no secret that、uh, after Xi Jinping took over, he has been following very orthodox,、uh, arch-conservative, even Maoist values. So the possibility for the Congress of Deputies resuming some of the functions which had been designated by the founding fathers of the Communist Party seemed to be quite illusory. But、uh, to put it briefly, there is actually a sense of、um, anticlimax, if you will, regarding this particularly、uh, important Congress because we have enough pieces of evidence to show that, and、uh, David may or may not agree. That it is a foregone conclusion that、uh, Xi Jinping, who is a princeling, that means he's a children of、uh, top party officials,、uh, he is a fairly charismatic politician.、Uh, politician, moreover, with a Machiavellian streak, that means he is very effective in building up coalitions and、um, in marginalizing his enemies. In this case, the two previous. Major factions in the party, namely the Shanghai faction led by former President Jiang Zemin and the Youth League faction、uh, led by ex-President Hu Jintao. So these 
two previous major factions have been marginalized. And what we are seeing is the relentless uh, growth and consolidation of Xi Jinping's own faction, the Xi Jinping faction, which did not exist five years ago, but it has now emerged as the most powerful faction in the party. So uh, the focus of attention will be the degree of majority uh, in terms of membership of the 205 member central committee, the 25 member Politburo, and most significantly, the seven member Politburo standing committee, the degree of majority which Xi Jinping will enjoy. And I'm sure that he will have to run pretty much of these senior um, organizations. And uh, another indication of uh, Xi Jinping's impending supremacy will be the fact that his ideas, his instructions, his guiding philosophy for the party and state, so-called the Xi Jinping thought, would be most likely enshrined in the party constitution as the equivalent to Mao Zedong thought. Because in the annals of the history of the Communist Party, the words of wisdom, the instructions of top leaders, uh, usually categorized as theory, thinking, and so forth. Only Mao Zedong's guiding theories for the state were given the high honor of Mao Zedong thought. And now with Xi Jinping thought, if it is indeed enshrined in the constitution, Xi Jinping will indeed achieve the same status as Mao Zedong. And, and this is precisely his goal five years ago. That means to establish his himself, to establish himself as the second most powerful politician since the Communist Party was founded in 2021, the second most powerful leader <coughs> apart from Mao Zedong. So Willie, your eyes will be mainly on Xi Jinping's supremacy on his like, how he can establish his power um, if his uh, ideas would be enshrined in the party constitution. David, is, would this be also your main focus when looking at the party congress or getting ready for the party congress to comment on it, to analyze it? Hmm. Uh, well, let me first just begin by thanking Merricks and the, and the Robert Bosch Stiftung for organizing this evening's event and, and bringing Willie and I so far uh, to Berlin. Berlin's one of my favorite places on the planet, so I'm always pleased to come back. Um, there was a time in my life when I was going to Berlin as frequently as Beijing, and I must say I enjoy Berlin more than Beijing. So <laughs> anyway, very nice to be here, and I appreciate everybody coming this evening. I understand that the Chinese embassy is holding its National Day reception this evening, and you have the choice of being there, many of you. They will give you better food there, but we're going to try and give you food for thought here. <laughs> Very well. Um, and I guess there might even be some food afterwards as well. So uh, thanks to, to the Stiftung and, and to Merricks. So I, uh, somewhat similar to Willie, uh, when I think about the Congress, I think it's, uh, the, you use the word anticlimactic, uh, which is um, an interesting choice of a term for something that hasn't happened yet, but I completely agree with you. Um, it's, um, I'm not anticipate, I'm not living in high expectations of this event as if it's going to alter China's course or we're going to have any major surprises. Of course, all these party congresses are highly, highly, highly scripted events. Nothing happens with, you know, by chance. Although we will have personnel changes that we don't know exactly. We'll talk about that this evening, I'm sure. We don't know who's going to get what job, who's going to be on the standing committee of the Politburo, and so on. So there will be some surprises when the men, and they'll all be men, who walk out behind the curtain in their blue ties. There may be one person who wears a red tie, but they'll usually have blue ties. We know that much. Men, blue ties. Um, but it's, uh, it's anticlimactic and um, there's, it's going to be a coronation, I, I agree with you. It's, this is going to be the Xi Jinping show. Uh, there's going to be a lot of sycophancy is the word that I think comes to my mind about Xi Jinping's thought will probably be inserted into the Constitution. But frankly, I'm not living in great anticipation of this meeting. The only qu big question mark in my mind is who will become the premier? That is a, an issue or, of great significance for the nation's economy. The other people who will fill these various positions are rather interchangeable. 
And it's not terribly consequential who goes to the National People's Congress and who goes to the CPPCC and who's on the standing committee versus the broader Politburo. Premier does make a difference. And so we'll have to talk about that. But Xi Jinping has, I agree with Willie, just managed, well, you said he managed to marginalize all his enemies. That's very true. You also said he managed to build coalitions. I'm not so sure I agree with that part of it. And we will go into that. I think Xi Jinping has spent the last five years decimating different uh, constituencies in the Chinese system. The Shanghai clique, the Youth League clique, the uh, high, the upper echelons of the PLA, 4,000 officers, over 100 generals, four central military commission members down. The PLA has never been hit with such personnel changes, not to mention policy changes uh, in the reorganization of the military. So I, I, we can come to this too. I, I find the military a very stressed institution. I find the party a very stressed institution. I find the civil sphere extremely stressed. Xi Jinping's first five years, you know, we can talk about his record of accomplishment. Frankly, I don't think there's a lot of accomplishment. I'm going to be very controversial here. And he's, he's broken a lot of rice bowls, a lot of iron rice bowls. He's alienated large segments of the elites um, and different bureaucracies, internal security, um, state security, military, I think, state council. So I'm not a great, I mean, I admire Xi Jinping on, on many levels, and particularly in terms of foreign policy. But um, his record of the last five years, and this Congress, uh, last thing I'll say in terms of anticipation, one should never anticipate new departures at Chinese party congresses. This, they, they are not about the future, unlike meetings in the West, uh, which lay out an agenda for the next you know, four years. That's not what Chinese party congresses are about. They are a restatement of the past four years or five years. So his work report that he will give, we have heard it all before. They, they put together different speeches that he's been giving over the last five years, and it's a restatement. So we're not going to get a lot of new information about where China's headed uh, coming out of this Congress, I don't think. Frankly, I'm not very anticipatory. It's a kind of non-event. Well, I, I, I think the, um, the world's attention on this Congress is, well, there is little doubt that Xi Jinping, um, powerful as he is already, will become um, the unchallenged paramount leader, perhaps leading the country for more than 10 years. I think um, I, I'm one of the uh, many China watch, watchers to have first pointed out that Xi Jinping, who is a, a big fan of President Vladimir Putin in Russia, would follow the Putin example of um, running the country for at least 15, if not 20 years. But before we go on, I think regarding uh, David's point about uh, Xi Jinping's accomplishments or lack of in the past five years, I think we need to draw t attention to the so-called China model. Well, uh, the China model has been touted not only by uh, official Chinese propagandists, but a host of well-regarded Western scholars for mainly two uh, accomplishments. And that is, uh, many Western scholars have argued that it is possible that the China model would be a good thing for at least developing countries. So in the absence of ballot box democracy, in the absence of most Western or Asian uh, international norms, Beijing has nonetheless been able to achieve economic growth and military modernization, mainly because of two points. One is a meritocratic cadre system, whereby uh, officials are selected, promoted, and then uh, elevated to senior state positions through meritocratic assessment. The second thing is scientific decision-making. That means in the absence of ballot box democracy, uh, we can cite quite a number of examples whereby the top leadership has been able to make decisions. For example, uh, I can cite the example of the decision uh, by uh, ex-president Jiang Zemin and uh, former prime minister Wen Jiabao to speed up the accession to the World Trade Organization, which was achieved in 2001 against the majority of advice and opposition from both central and regional leadership. However, with Xi Jinping, we have seen that he has 
broken the back of the China model. I mentioned earlier that within five years, Xi Jinping has been able to build up his own Xi Jinping faction. That means mostly his cronies, underlings, and associates who served him when Xi Jinping was in uh, Fujian province from 85 to 202 and in Zhejiang province from 202 to 207. So uh, in the past one, two years, we have seen Xi Jinping giving what the Chinese call helicopter rides to these officials who were his underlings during his provincial career. I have done uh, very careful fact-checking on the CVs, on the uh, credentials, on the achievements of these high flyers. And I found very disturbingly that their major claim to fame and their major claim to being able to um, go up the hierarchy faster than anybody else is their loyalty to Xi Jinping. So Xi Jinping has actually broken one of the cardinal principles of the China model, and that is a meritocratic cadre system. Secondly, decision-making. Decision-making has been very poorly done in the past five years. It has deteriorated mainly because Xi Jinping has broken one of the two major recommendations of Deng Xiaoping. Well, Deng Xiaoping, of course, was a victim of the Cultural Revolution. So immediately upon uh, assuming power in December, two, in, in December 1978, Deng Xiaoping made many very wise decisions at the institutional level. One is no, no official should be able to build up a personality cult. Secondly, the country should be run by a collective leadership. Thirdly, there should be meaningful separation of party and state. And what has happened in the past five years is that Xi Jinping has stood all these Deng Xiaoping instructions on their heads. Sorry, really, if I take the privilege to interrupt you as a moderator. Sure. That's, I think that's very important because that's also what a lot of people discuss right now. So Xi Jinping introducing, and you both mentioned that actually, you mentioned it, Willie and David, to introducing a new kind of governance style. You were both referring to it as the Xi Jinping thought might be enshrined in the party a constitution. So what is really new about Xi Jinping's like overall program or has he a vision or is it basically kind of combining or breaking the rules and changing uh, techniques or what is really his, his, his vision or what is new about his program? I first would really agree with everything Willie just said and would emphasize for the audience that we recognize this about Xi Jinping, these norms that have been long established from Deng Xiaoping onwards that he has broken and reversed. And one can say, in fact, that the Xi Jinping period has been a retrogression over the last five years from the previous three decades and exactly the areas that Willie gave, so I won't repeat them, but consultative decision-making, meritocratic promotion, and technocratic policy-making, and, and the institutionalized policy-making. All those things have broken down under Xi Jinping badly. So I wouldn't say that that's uh, you know, a credit to, to him or, or to China. Well, if you ask Kristen, what is his program? Apart I, from I, breaking the rules. You know, <laughs> he does have a vision, he's, and it's laid out in the 454-page volume of the governance of China. Um, if you haven't read it, one should, quite seriously. There, there's a lot of, it was published, what, two years ago? Um, it's a collection of his speeches. There have been many other books published in Chinese uh, you can get in China. He's not short on speeches. And they're substantive. Some of them are quite substantive speeches. For example, in science and technology, for example, he's given, he has a vision for China being a global innovation leader. And um, he's not the only one in China, and he's, but he's made a lot of comments about that. And they have a serious uh, internal uh, program for uh, becoming global leader in I think 11 or 12 different advanced areas of technology and they're pouring billions into those 11 areas. So that's one element. But the other areas of governance, you know, the odd thing is he writes about governance, but where's the governance? It's all about him. There's no decentralization. There's no empowerment of the party itself. There's no empowerment of local committees. There's no, empower, there's no separation of party and state. That ended really in 1989, unfortunately. But this, 
you know, the, the state doesn't have any real autonomy in economic decision-making. The party has really taken over a lot of spheres that had been moved elsewhere. But his vision, I mean, on the more positive side, we have to say some positive things about Xi Jinping. The uh, China dream, okay, but is that Xi Jinping's idea? No, that's a, a restatement of many former Chinese leaders going back to Li Hongzhang in the self-strengthening movement of the late Qing dynasty. They've all been talking about rejuvenation and fu xing, da fu xing, da hui fu. Um, Chiang Kai-shek would talk about that. Mao talked about that. And Deng talked about that. So every Chinese leader talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And it resonates. You know, that's, that's playing to the base in Chinese politics. So that's an element, and um, one belt, one road. We'll come on to foreign policy issues in our discussion, I hope. That's unique uh, to Xi Jinping. That's a major new initiative. I mean, one can argue that it's putting, it's, uh, putting together pieces of other previous initiatives and rebranding. But his vision for China, it's a one of a um, state or party dominant, not a state dominant, um, system that is, stands tall in the world, is a major power, you know, and he's had this whole major country relations. But the elements of the pieces of the puzzle, I don't really see there in his broad vision for, for building China. So you were suggesting that basically he is uh, core of his vision for China. Well, uh, focusing on domestic issues, perhaps uh, during the Q&A period, um, David and I could discuss exciting things like the, the Belt and Road and so forth. But domestically speaking, well, we have to remember that Xi Jinping is basically a, a, an arch-conservative and orthodox um, party member who is not only a closet Maoist, but a full-fledged Maoist who is eager to reinstate many of the norms and thinkings and policies of Mao Zedong. For Xi Jinping, and, and he's not shy about this, I think one thing we have to give credit for Xi Jinping for is that he's frank. He doesn't pull any punches. He said uh, what he wanted to say, and, and that is his top priority is to ensure that the Communist Party remains China's perennial ruling party. Therefore, the party's monopoly on most of China's political resources and some of the economic resources must never be challenged. So. I asked the question earlier that uh, most people are hopeful that uh, with his enhanced power at the 90 Party Congress, he might feel more energized. Uh, he might feel that he has more of a power base to move the country forward in reforms in either economic or political arenas. Uh, with political reform, I, I think there is no possibility because he sees all political liberalization, for example, the enlargement of the civil society, participation in uh, ordinary citizens in decision-making as challenges to the supremacy of the party. Regarding economic reform, I think he's a confirmed believer in state capitalism. That means China would, uh, in the foreseeable future of one to two decades, China will re remain a mixed economy. So mm -hmm. some aspects of the economy might be integrated with the economic international marketplace, but key sectors of the economy would still be tightly controlled by the party state operators in terms of the 100-odd state-owned enterprise conglomerates. In the past one, two years, Xi Jinping has experimented with a very limited degree of privatization of the SOE conglomerates. But so far, we have seen no example of the state actually giving over control of these conglomerates to private firms. Uh, regarding reform in general, let me tell you one uh, anecdote which you don't necessarily see under Xi Jinping thought, and, and this is the now famous theory of the Titanic. Well, Xi Jinping, in an internal speech, said that China is a huge, complex country. So he has compared China to the Titanic, saying that, well, once the Titanic starts going down, it will just go down just like that. There's, there's no way of turning this around. So. Uh, he has warned his advisors against committing so-called subversive errors. Subversive mistakes, meaning those mistakes which could lead to a curtailment of party supremacy. And I remember very clearly he said this, irrespective of how wonderful, brilliant, efficient a policy is, 
that policy cannot be adopted if that policy results in curtailment of the party's monopoly on power, it results in a decentralization of power, and it results finally in the breakup of the Communist Party. So we can see, I think, very clearly that Xi Jinping is a preservationist leader. He's not going after new visions, new dreams, as was the case of Deng Xiaoping and his supporters. So the preservation, I mean, you both made that very clear. So the survival of the Communist Party, the communist regime is, is the baseline, is the bottom line, so to say, of all his, his thinking, of all his reforms, of everything he introduces. And that's probably what, what everybody, I mean, the whole communist cutters agree to because their, their lives are basically attached to that. But to what extent do we have, I mean, from the insights you both have, any kind of competition, any topics which are contested within the wider leadership? Like, I mean, this also links to the question of support for Xi Jinping's vision. Do we have issues which are contested? I mean, economic issues or political issues or foreign policy issues are contested really within the political leadership? If there are, they're very hard to see. Uh, they always do a good job at masking differences and masking factions. But this, uh, under Xi Jinping, it has become such a unified, Tungyi Jianxian, they call it, unified line, um, that the differences are not allowed to surface, for one thing. That's when I use the term that the technocratic uh, leadership or technocratic method of policy making has broken down. That's what I was referring to. Um, different visions are not floating up through the system. They're very capable set of technocrats and cadres that China has, and they're trained abroad, and they're trained in China, and they know their subjects, whatever it happens to be, extremely well, are not being used. When I talk to Chinese about this, the term that they frequently use is tingzhi, to freeze up. The whole system has frozen up. Part of it has to do with the anti-corruption campaign. Part of it has to do with the demands of not challenging Xi Jinping himself. The party has lost its life. It, it's sort of a robotic. This is a kind of interesting contradiction because Xi Jinping, I agree with Willie, is absolutely obsessed with maintaining the party in power forever. And he, uh, came, he's, he's quite open about it. And he gave some speeches at the early part of his term in Guangdong about the lessons to be learned from the Soviet collapse. He's not the only senior party member who is obsessed with the Soviet collapse and the GDR collapse and all other communist collapses. That, they, they, wake, they go to bed at night and they wake up in the morning and that's what's on their mind. And so if you're a Leninist party, there are two ways to deal with those challenges. One is to open up and the other is to close up, you might say. And up until 2009, uh, they were flirting with different types of opening, what I call soft authoritarianism. But since 2009, even before Xi Jinping became the top leader, they have moved to a much more draconian, almost totalitarian approach to a number of issue areas. So they, you know, that's his approach to sustaining the party in power. I think it's really stressed the institution and there's no what they call party life. There's no life in the body of the party. This is a, it's like an organism in which the, I don't know, the, the capillaries and the blood isn't circulating. It's kind of sclerotic. So the irony is that he's tried to save the party through dealing with corruption and other methods, but he's created the party is almost like a military where everybody just takes orders and it's, um, it's a very robotic kind of institution. And my view is that is further on the road to collapse, actually. <laughs> well, I, I think after the Nanipan Congress and in the uh, ensuing 10 years, the economy uh, holds the key to the party and state. Uh, I remember in the first year of um, Li Keqiang taking up the position of prime minister, uh, Li Keqiang did propose some liberal ideas, for example, the leveraging the uh, economy, developing more private enterprises and, and giving more support to non-state-owned enterprises. Uh, however, the term economics, which uh, was invented by the Chinese media, comparing Li Keqiang's new ideas to Abenomics, the term uh, economics only had a circulation of six months, after which nobody mentioned this in the state media. 
there is still a raging uh, controversy between uh, Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping's advisors who are basically uh, insistent upon the, the, the party state's control for the economy and a good-sized number of state council, that means central government officials, many of them speak very good English and have been trained overseas, who advocate a more thorough interaction with the international marketplace. So everybody knows that the Chinese economic miracle ended several years ago, and uh, we're looking at at most uh, perhaps 4 or 5% growth rate uh, six, seven years down the road. So uh, at this stage, the in spite of talk about economic structuring for the past 20 years, uh, the Chinese economy is still heavily dependent on government investment. That means state injection of cash in areas like infrastructure, real estate, and so forth. As a result of which, no surprises that the China's total social debt is about three times GDP. And according to a respected economist quoted by Financial Times, the bad debt ratio in Chinese banks is as high as 25%. So basically, the economy, despite success in some areas such as high-tech, uh, in particular artificial intelligence, robotics, and, and so forth, uh, which seem to be doing quite well because most of these uh, high-tech startups uh, are run by individual entrepreneurs who had gotten their engineering and science degrees from uh, the US and Europe. Uh, but apart from that, the major area of the economy is dependent on debt creation, and this is yeah. unsustainable. So I will submit that uh, one possibility for a change of the um, political system, and which could only be effectuated by an effective challenge against Xi Jinping's predominance is if there is an economic crisis, which Xi Jinping's people could not solve. But Willie, if I stand you correctly, and I also wanted to challenge both of you, also following up on what David just said. So you actually envision the slowly or the inevitable collapse, in a sense, of that kind of system, because it's too static, not flexible enough. And Willie, you also just mentioned it. So. Does it mean that without a significant political liberalization, you don't see any further continuance for the current, also economic system? Well, at this stage, we don't see any substantial reforms introduced by Xi Jinping. But can he go on without any political liberalization, also tackling this very challenging structural reform then? Right. Economic structural reforms. Well, the short answer is never underestimate the Communist Party's ability to muddle through. <laughs> the um, right. obituary for the party has been written um, hundreds, of, hundreds of times, particularly after the June 4th crisis, but it seems like the party has been able to muddle through. However, after each so-called successful muddling through, the, the, the party structure has been weakened and the body blow has been dealt the reformist elements of the party so that uh, if you were to ask me today who constitutes the reformist faction of the party I, I can't give you an answer at the beginning of the Xi administration I remember in uh, 2013 uh, some of the remnants of the uh, liberal party elders for example the sons and daughters of Hu Yaobang whom as you might remember was the uh, a disciple of Deng Xiaoping, a faithful carrier of Deng Xiaoping's reforms. So uh, in the first one, two years, the children of Hu Yaobang and other remnant uh, liberal uh, cadres still uh, hoping against hope that Xi Jinping might be sympathetic towards those kinds of reforms, which would not jeopardize the party's monopoly. But as days go by, I think, uh, Xi Jinping has demonstrated his total unwillingness to entertain these radical solutions. And after the death of communism, in not just the Soviet Union, but in China in the early 90s, uh, the Communist Party, which does not have a ballot box legitimacy, it has only two pillars of legitimacy. One is constant economic growth and uh, constant improvement in the livelihood of workers, peasants, and other members of the 
underclasses. The second mechanism is nationalism. And Xi Jinping is the most nationalist Chinese leader I've seen after Mao Zedong. So in the absence of significant economic improvement, not to mention the prospect of continuous deterioration, uh, more reliance of debt creation, uh, reliance on debt to uh, create economic growth. I think Xi Jinping would put more emphasis after the 90th Party Congress on stoking the flames of nationalism. And I think this tallies with what David uh, was saying earlier with some of these multi-decade overarching intercontinental infrastructure projects such as the Belt and Road uh, strategy and so forth. But let's remember that at this stage, uh, well, it might be too early to pass a judgment on the Belt and Road because this is, after all, a grand strategy lasting at least two to three decades. But at this stage, the Belt and Road strategy is still predicated upon state-owned enterprise conglomerates borrowing money from Chinese banks to finance infrastructure projects in risky areas such as Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Myanmar, and so forth. These are infrastructure projects which have zero possibility of making money, not to mention recovering their initial cost. So there there are clear-cut limits as to the extent to which Xi Jinping could prolong parties' mandate of heaven, relying mainly on this nationalistic pursuits and efforts to raise China's posture uh, in the international arena. So David, I mean, again, challenging you, what you've just said. So the, the collapse of such a system which closes up itself and not being able to tackle these challenges. This is inevitable, so it's really a muddling through under Xi Jinping the next five years, or how can, I mean, seriously, it looks pretty good on the other hand. I mean, can we imagine that he will be successful, successfully by one way or the other, really guiding China the next 10 or 15 years? Well, I wouldn't use the word collapse with reference to the party. I very carefully use the word atrophy and decline. And I see that all com- all Leninist parties are prone to protracted atrophy and decline. That's a condition that afflicts all of them. The question is, what do they do? And there are reasons for that atrophy and decline. And you can go back and study, those of us who study the former field of international communism, you can identify very clearly what I call a life cycle. There are seven, seven phases through which Leninist parties pass. And they get to the sixth phase, and they either, quote, adapt, which is code word for open up, decentralize, enfranchise, engage civil society, engage the public sphere, relax and move to a soft authoritarian model. Or they continue their protracted decline. So that's China has oscillated, frankly, back and forth between those two since the 1980s. In Chinese, they call this the fang shou zhou qi, opening, closing cycle. And, you know, we've been through, I think, six or seven of these phases. Usually the open phase lasts for six or seven years, followed by two years of retrenchment and closing. And then they get back to soft authoritarian opening. And then six years later, they retrench again. There have been about seven. You can track these very carefully. Willie's writings, just read Willie's books. He tracks them perfectly. But you're saying this is not going to happen under Xi Jinping, this reopening. No, I don't see any sign of reopening. There isn't a liberal bone in this man's body. Uh, And he's profoundly hostile to not just liberalism, but all these norms of opening within their one-party system. So that's why I say that it's producing stresses on the party as an institution, producing stresses on different parts of the system and the society. Uh, It doesn't mean it's going to collapse, but it does mean that the party as an institution has to rely on very blunt instruments of control. Rather than co-opting and getting the participation of the society into the system, they're ruling increasingly through coercion and the threat of coercion, just like all Leninist parties do. Recall the Hanukkah, recall the GDR, recall the Soviet Union before Gorbachev. So 
you know, this, this is a long-term process. Um, Soviet Union began to decline in 1964 when Khrushchev was overthrown. It took 27 years before it finally collapsed under Gorbachev. By the time Gorby came along, the system was too fragile. It couldn't take the soft authoritarian reforms. So long story short, but what Xi Jinping is doing right now is just what Brezhnev, Chernyanko, and Dropov, to a certain extent, did in the Soviet Union. He's making the system more brittle and less, when, if and they get back to reform, which I don't think they're going to be doing, then the system is less capable of absorbing a reform, if you follow the argument. Now, I agree with Willie, just to conclude, don't count the Communist Party days over. They, or their ability to muddle through any country with a $10 trillion economy and a state security apparatus that has a bigger budget than the military, but a military that has a second largest military budget in the world and a global footprint in their foreign policy and uh, all the other attributes that the People's Republic of China have. This is not the GDR we're talking about. <laughs> you know, this is um, a very significant global power but within that power, at the heart of the entity is the party. And, you know, one can argue if Xi Jinping were through a fourth chair here, he would be saying, I've made the party stronger. We are, we, five years ago, we were in crisis. I have rescued the party. That would be his argument through his anti-corruption campaign and other moves. Um, well, there's an alternative view, and I think we're entitled to our alternative views. I think he's made the party weaker. Willie, if we think about ourselves here in the Western world, so to say, in Europe, in the United States, I mean, how to reconcile this and how to eventually, what kind of China or maybe China's we have to face, the one who is going to be also pledges to be more responsible, to be more engaging, to be more like of a global responsible player, climate change, peacekeeping, but on the one hand, China, which is increasingly closing up, hardening itself, maybe even resisting a liberal flow of ideas. So what kind of China should we prepare to face and how should we face it? Kristen, well, can I actually sure. begin on this one? Sure, first go ahead. In interfere in Willie's internal affairs or usurp the conversation. <laughs> it's, it's all uh, But um, this is exactly a very good question on which to conclude our discussion before we open it. There's this big contradiction between the insecurity that we've been talking about domestically in China and the, confident, the lack of confidence domestically, you might say, and the extraordinary confidence and security that China has externally in the world. And they deserve great praise for, and Xi Jinping personally deserves great praise for the last five years of foreign policy. There are only two countries in the world right now that have bad relations with China, two out of 192. You know what they are? North and South Korea. Seriously, both of them. In fact, they're worse with South Korea than they are with North Korea at the moment. Everybody else, China has pretty good, if not very good, relations with. Some of the countries, like America, they're stressed. India, stressed. Australia, increasingly stressed. But, over, but even the stressed countries, there's a normalcy to the relationship still. And global governance, the reason I want to pick up on this. How I mean, do we, face we, we have to give Xi Jinping, personally, I think, credit for China really stepping up its game in this space of global governance. Five years ago, they were free riding on the system. They've been free riding on the system for a very long time. Everybody knows that, everybody accused them of it. They were very defensive about it. But in the last five years, we see them doing things in various areas, global economic governance, disaster relief, peacekeeping, anti-piracy, pandemics and global health, a lot of things that they weren't doing previously. And that's a good trend. We need the second major power in the world, particularly when the major power in the world is retreating from the international arena. We need the second major power to assert itself a bit more, and I think China deserves credit in that space. But then the question is, how do we explain that contradiction? I'm going to pose that question to Willie, because we have one China internally and another China externally, and personally, personally, analytically, I... It causes me cognitive dissonance. I don't understand the contradiction. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think, I think many people would agree with me that the surprising emergence of Donald Trump is 
actually the best thing which has ever happened to Xi Jinping. <laughs> uh, well, given the fact that Donald Trump is not considered to be a serious uh, policymaker in different parts of the world, including Germany, given his anti-globalization stance, his, shall we say, very archaic, archaic views about climate change and so forth, Xi Jinping was one of the first, and he has been very successful in stepping into the vacuum created by Donald Trump. So I think uh, from his very ambitious speech at the World Economic Forum in January this year through his subsequent addresses to the G20, to other meetings, Xi Jinping now has staked up a claim for China, the second most powerful economy uh, in the world, a claim to be a uh, not just a stakeholder, but a rule setter, a norm setter, so after the 19th Palace Congress, with his power enhanced, I think he will be using more of China's resources towards those ends. Of course, the consideration, the risk is that, as I mentioned, the trillions of dollars which uh, Xi Jinping has thrown into the One Belt, One Road strategy, uh, most of which look more like ODA, Overseas Development Aid, than what Xi Jinping called a win-win 50-50 joint ventures. This could render China's indebtedness even more serious. Uh, as for what David mentioned, how are we to distinguish the two China? Well, I, I think the China which is adopting perhaps a, a progressive, uh, forward-looking stance in world affairs is actually not so much different as the China which is domestically adopting uh, draconian methods to construct the most powerful uh, police state apparatus in the world, because now the, uh, this is the police state apparatus which is enabled with artificial intelligence, uh, face recognition software, right. big data, and so forth. Well, these are mechanisms which the, uh, in its heyday, the KGB in the Soviet Union would never have dreamed of. So what is happening, I think, is that in um, international intercourse, uh, when Chancellor Merkel and other European leaders are dealing with China, they need to be more circumspect. For example, as uh, French President Macron mentioned a few months ago, the Europeans need to be on its guard when they see Chinese companies gobbling up high-tech corporations uh, in uh, Europe. We also need to remind the Chinese that they have to absorb, they have to observe international law. So this is one reason why one of the big ticket items being paraded as a success story for One Belt, One Road, the ambitious high-speed railway connection between Serbia, between um, uh, Belgrade uh, and um, Budapest. Budapest. Uh, is now under the scrutiny and investigation of the EU directorate because uh, this deal was not conducted under uh, international bidding and other international arrangements according to inter international law. So I think we should be telling the Chinese that um, in their aspiration, in their very successful efforts to build up, to, to enlarge the global footprint, uh, they have to observe international law. And relatively developing countries, including those in the EU, including, for example, um, uh, the, the 16 uh, Central and, and Eastern uh, European countries, which seem to have formed this uh, 16 plus 1 mechanism with China and other smaller EU countries, like Greeks, which are dependent on Chinese economic aid, they should not relax their insistence on observing international law when uh, handling economic and other uh, intercourse with China. Before we hand it over to the distinguished audience, um, you were both, of course, also talking with the Chinese, and that's also what it's called tonight, actually, Engage in China, talking with the Chinese. Um, I would like to ask both of you uh, for a quick answer, uh, given the following question, the following situation. Imagine both of you had a microphone, or a megaphone even, and you were supposed to talk in Beijing to 
a hundred thousand of the youngest, brightest Chinese going to be the future leaders of that country. Because we have talked a lot about Xi Jinping and the Chinese government, and I think, of course, that's important. But thinking about the younger generation of Chinese who's going to be the future leaders of that country, and you have hmm. half a minute, you have to give at least only one or two questions. What would be your message? to them? What would be your vision to them or you hope what would be? What would you say to them, Billy? Just one sentence or David. Well, what pops to my mind, I would give them three numbers, 101, uh, 12, and uh, sorry, 101, 11, and 9. So what do those three, these three numbers have in common? Well, the World Bank tells us that since 1960, there have been 111 countries in the world that have entered the so-called middle income trap of economic development, which means they've transitioned from being developing countries to middle income, newly industrializing countries, hopefully on their way to becoming fully developed modern economies. World Bank divides economies into three parts. So um, 11, only 11 of those 101 have successfully made it through the middle income trap and become developed economies. Therefore, 89 out of 101 have not, hence the term trap. They get trapped in this middle status strata of development. Now, what about the two? Of the 11 that have successfully made it, two were democracies going into the trap, Israel and Greece. Uh, the other uh, nine were uh, authoritarian states of one kind or another politically. So 100% correlation with uh, some form of democratization and uh, making it through the trap and becoming a full modern economy. The two are mutually exclusive. You either stay in the trap, and I would say to the Chinese audience, you're welcome to um, not follow the Xi Jinping thought and the party line, and uh, you will stay in the middle income trap forever. Um, so if I may summarize that for you, <laughs> be brave, open up, open up. Yeah. Willie, what would you say? Exactly. <laughs> Well, actually, um, <clears throat> uh, regarding this imaginary op opportunity to talk to the uh, young people, I think I need to consult my wife first uh, <laughs> whether I should make that speech. Uh, it might be also a message. Talk to your wives more often before you make some decisions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I think we tend to, uh, particularly in the era of Xi Jinping, we tend to suppose that the party is a monolithic animal. Actually, well, many of my students in Hong Kong are, are mainland Chinese graduate students, and I think they are aware of the fact that to get away from what they would describe as the middle-income trap and so forth, they do need to adopt a more positive liberal attitude towards not just high-tech in the West, but also international values, which actually have been adopted by many Asian countries. And this includes international law, this includes human rights covenants which, to which China has acceded and, and, and so forth. So I think most of them, despite the overwhelming propaganda to the contrary, namely that Xi Jinping is the new Mao Zedong and so forth, I think uh, many of them are capable of making independent judgments. So I will encourage them to go forward with this apparently more difficult, but eventually more rewarding path. Okay, so be curious and we welcome to talk to you further and be encouraged, be brave, open up. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.